Okay, we're recording, and this is Reese Crothers, and I'm here with my friend and co-host. Hi, I'm Bjorn Olsen, and welcome back, everybody, once again, to another episode of the filmography. Season one, Francis Ford Coppola. We, uh, you know, if you've heard the previous episodes, and you know that we're doing the entire filmography of a particular filmmaker for, for a season, and last week we, we left off with The Godfather. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, basically, we're uh, at at the point where Coppola has sort of actualized into the, as you said, into the filmmaker that we sort of know today. Um, he's gone through his early works and then comes out with the God, with the Godfather and basically, you know, owns Hollywood for most of the seventies. Absolutely. And what's great about this one? What's What's amazing is that this was the kind of movie that he said he wanted to make. This these sort of smaller yeah. pictures. Uh, you know, yeah. you could say this is from the director of Rain Rain People, and and there's a similar. Yeah. it's even the same um, director of photography, um, but yeah, it was only possible because of the breakout success of The Godfather that he was able to make it right, and and you have yeah, this, this, and he was able to do whatever he wanted. Yeah, yeah, and and so you, it's kind of that amazing point in a filmmaker's career where they have carte blanche, and then. It's sort of it's on them whether they succeed or they fail, um, but he had Godfather mm-hmm. two already lined up, obviously. So he got to make it. He yeah. he makes the conversation in this little break in between the two parts of the of the Godfather, and so this is nineteen seventy four, yeah. same year as the Godfather Part two, and I believe yeah. he was nominated for best director for both of them in the same year, which I think nobody else did until um, Soderbergh did it. For, um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, for traffic and Aaron Brockovich, right? So that's pretty amazing. But what's right. really cool is so you've yeah. got you've got the Godfather, huge hit, all the Academy Awards, all the money, all the accolades, and you've got Godfather Part Two lined up, and everybody, everybody, you've you've got a willing and participating audience at that time that's just dying to see your next movie, mm-hmm. and you make this sort of strange, uh, intimate kind of dissonant little thriller. In between, and that's yeah. I think he took a big risk in 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 making this film. But what's amazing is obviously it's a classic. So I mean, he's two for two. But you could imagine you could imagine the yeah. the trepidation before it was released to say this is not the Godfather. This is a very 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 different movie. Yeah, it's you know I wonder what actually it was like because it is I do think about that a lot. The release pattern of these films, and he could have just rested on his laurels. I mean, obviously he had to get back to work. Um, and Godfather two is such a, a gigantic project, but he could have just rested on his laurels and yeah. been like, yeah, I've accomplished what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to make Godfather two and, you know, sail through this. But he was so, um, you know, serious and, and, um, intense about what he wanted to be, the kind of filmmaker he wanted to be that the, the Coppola as auteur and, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to, like, this, the conversation was something that he sort of had in mind from uh, the late 60s. Like, yeah. it was probably a, a film that he had been working on in his brain in all of the, you know, spare time between, like, getting hired on for his uh, hired gun movies in the late 60s and um, getting hired on to do Patton and then probably in the difficult times of making... Uh, in the early going of the Godfather um, when he was, uh, you know, getting studio interference and 
maybe thinking about the conversation a little bit helped him get through that. Um, I don't know that for sure. He, I, I have not heard him talk about that uh, exactly. But well, I know he started um, it when it he does, was young, does, like twenty six. I think he said yeah. he started writing it. Yeah, and so you know, and then what's amazing is that the two influences on the commentary he says are um, Steppenwolf and Blow Up. Yeah. Right. So you've got those two yeah. stories exactly. that are the interior sort of nature of one and the, and I guess mm-hmm. the, the paranoia of the other. Um, it's amazing yeah. that blow up inspired the conversation and blowout because those two films yeah. would make a great double bill. Absolutely. And, and, um, and there are also, you know, and have, um, Sort of the way that we are advancing specifically Hollywood movies um, at their at their specific time of release, like the conversation is um, again another leap ahead. We talked about it a lot with The Godfather, but it's another big leap ahead with him um, in terms of style and feeling. And 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 Blowout is also like that. Like Blowout is well through the eighties. Here we go. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's true. And it's also, it, it, what's amazing is we talked about the the sort of timeless nature of The Godfather. Um, you know, obviously it's made in the mm-hmm. 70s. It's it's set, what, in the 40s, I think, right? And it's, yeah. I, I can't I don't know what year Godfather is supposed to be set in. But I mean, so you have this sort of timeless quality. And then the conversation is like really modern in between the two Godfathers, right? Yeah. Like, it's modern day San Francisco. Yeah. There's a wider color palette. You see blues and reds. And, yeah. Um, it's a really, yeah. but at the same time, even though it's very spare and like small and intimate compared to the Godfather, and it does look kind of like the Godfather. There's a lot of darkness and a lot of shadow. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very mm-hmm. beautifully shot movie, but it, it, it fits within the aesthetics of the two Godfathers, I think. But maybe it's good too to mm-hmm. say like, so if you haven't seen the conversation, so Gene Hackman plays a professional eavesdropper who's hired to record a conversation from what looks like to be two lovers. And you think maybe this is like a Chinatown kind of thing, like, uh, you know, um, catching somebody in an affair. Um, and at the beginning he says, you know, he doesn't care what they're talking about. All he cares about is getting a big fat recording, getting it's, it's all about the fidelity of the recording has nothing to do with the content. Right. And then slowly over the course of the movie, he starts to become obsessed with the content of the recording and starts to fear that he may Mm -hmm. be repeating an incident from his past, also kind of like Chinatown, um, where everything went wrong. Um, People were killed because of a recording that he made. And so he starts to become concerned that he's responsible for what he is recording. And, Mm -hmm. Um, and it leads up to a murder mystery and whether or not he's complicit or can do anything about it is sort of the source of the suspense. Right. Um, and Mm -hmm. what's amazing about it, I think looking at it now is it's 1974. And so it's cutting edge technology for 1974, but it's obviously very antiquated looking at it now, except that the nature of, of audio recording hasn't changed as much as video recording. And so I th- I was surprised right. that it kind of aside from the fact that they're using reel to reel tapes and stuff. I mean, I loved the analog nature of it all, but it still felt to me like mm-hmm. kind of cutting edge. 
You know, like the way that they yeah, oh the yeah, that for, they for sure. capture the opening conversation using those those microphones that look like rifles with targets on them, and um, yeah, I mean, I I think that I wonder if you had to record the sound for that, if that was the assignment you were given again to capture these two people talking in a public space with a million people walking mm-hmm. past and people talking and chattering and without being seen. I wonder how different it would be. I don't think it would be that different to what Harry does in the movie. No, and. I- and I, I think like the, the methods that are used in trying to, you know, pull the audio from it, it's not that different from trying to mix any digital source that you would, you would have, um, or however it, w- it would work. I think it's funny. I, I, I don't even know if it's actually possible. Like you just sort of take it for granted what he, what he does because he's, yeah. because the story is, so well developed and, and the character is so well developed like you just take it sort of for granted that he is able to do what he does I don't even know if that's actually possible with analog tape but he does it and he gets he keeps getting you know better and better um, uh, quality sound of, of what they're actually saying and I mean of course like the sound design in this movie is just <laughs> it's, it's just next level yeah. like it's extraordinary it's not just you know, showy stuff. It's it's um, like it's actually artistic. It's a character um, in the movie. The Walter Murch is absolutely yeah. Walter Murch is the sound editor. I think he was the editor. Period. Yeah. Um, but he couldn't get the credit for some reason because of the union. He wasn't in the union or something, right? He said, "Yeah, he's." Coppola said something about that in the commentary. I forget exactly what it was, and it was like what Murch was doing sound wise was so so different and didn't really exist. They sort of gave him this new title. Yeah, um, so, but it's yeah, it's absolutely re- revolutionary. But and if you talk about like the uh, yeah opening scenes, uh, like in Patton and The Godfather, yeah. and this movie has one of the greatest opening scenes ever. Like yeah. just and it, it's you know the when, like in Patton and Godfather is a lot of dialogue and a lot of um, like it's just uh, throwing stuff at you to introduce characters, especially in, in the Godfather. And this is like, it's so the whole thing is obfuscated. Like it's, the, yeah. the, you know, that weird crackly sound effect to it, which is just so unsettling. And, and it, you know, you can't help but sort of lean forward and try and figure out what's going on. And the incredible, incredible, like, um, I, I don't, I, I like it's, it's a crane of some sort just coming in, you know, from following him way up high in, into the, into the square and just like, you know, perfectly shot in focus and, and it just so, so well planned out. And, 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 and well, he uh, talks about the know, camera being like executed. a dead camera. He, he says uh, yeah. one point, right. But, but that's a good example where the camera is moving and it's moving in a really sophisticated yeah. way. Um, but he yeah. also talked about, about the camera being almost like an automated presence itself, almost like a, yeah. you know, like a voice activated microphone that it's searching yeah. for what it wants to film. And that's a great shot that, that slow zoom in from, I, I was yeah. assuming it must be from that building that says like Paris lights or whatever. Um, yes, for sure. Yeah. But, but, you know, so it could be the vantage point of one of the people with those rifle microphones, but as it as it select what's amazing is that he's supposed to be unseen in the crowd and then the camera selects mm-hmm. him and i love that the mime 
uh, selects him as well, right? It's like the one person that doesn't yeah. want any attention, and this guy's following his every move. And he never Hackman never yeah. looks at him, right? But he just kind of his head. He's like an animal watching out of the side of his head, and uh, and the mime yeah. also, also picks up on the on the couple and imitates them as well, right? But yeah. it's well, it's, it's immediately I mean, makes I, you complicit. This is, yeah, this is, I've seen this movie several times before, and. Even this time watching it, I'm seeing the mime and I'm like, wait, is the mime, is he one of, is he part of this? Is he <laughs> part of the surveillance team? Because it's just so well done. Like, even though I've seen it and I know that he's not, but it's, yeah. Well, it, it feels it, so. The opening sequence is incredible. It's, it's, it's such an amazing undertaking because it's like, it's, it's, yeah. it's not uh, Enemy of the State, you know, and I, we'll have to talk about Enemy of the State later because of the yeah. Hackman character. Um it's it's mm-hmm. it's kind of really simply done with zooms but i was funny like watching all these i've been watching all these old italian movies like from the 70s that the way they yeah. use zooms is i mean it's basically because it's their only camera and they're trying to save money and the zoom is but it's used haphazardly and what, the way that coppola uses the zoom in this movie is always like it's probing it's penetrating it's 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 seeking you out it's like he's a movie about privacy the the way every time the camera zooms it's stripping away your privacy it's like it's really used mm-hmm. dramatically and the motif of that of zooming in of searching of looking um it's it's un, it's really unnerving and the way that it does it in that opening shot the way that it's coming down from above it feels like fate is like being lowered down upon his head it's like trapping him you know yeah it's really really powerful yeah. And then, of course, there's that great yeah. zoom when he's when he's finally losing his shit, or, or when he during the um, you know the in the climactic sort of like revealing of the mystery, of which I won't spoil. But when he's under the in the bathroom scene, in the bathroom scene underneath the counter, yep, absolutely. And, I mean, that is just so good, terrifying. Yeah, and it's like, and so he, I, that's one of the things I love about the movie is the way he uses the zoom camera, and obviously he's using yeah. long lenses for things and and letting scenes play. It has it has a similar pace. I think to the Godfather, it's slow and it kind of, mm-hmm. you know, but it doesn't, and it, it doesn't, yeah. ha- but it's on a much, much smaller canvas. And yet it still feels like kind of a big movie. Maybe yeah. part of that is the way that it's so smart, how it starts in that union square um, setting where you have so many people. And I think it's even the holidays cause they hide microphones inside of like a Christmas package. I think in, in that opening scene. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it's, just before Christmas, I think, yeah. So it has that sense of like a big world, you know, and then it goes into the van and you're inside. Mm-hmm. And like The Godfather, what's amazing is it's like um, in the beginning of The Godfather, you're a guest at the wedding. So you're already being invited into yeah. an inclusive world that we don't know a lot about. And so even though this is a much smaller yeah. uh, ca- canvas, um, it still has that feeling of going from a bigger world, like the Union Square Plaza, into this tiny world, which mm-hmm. is represented by the van. Yeah, and then and then you're getting the ins- you're getting the behind the scenes. You're getting you're getting again to be invited into this really interesting subculture because the eavesdropping stuff, mm-hmm. the eavesdropping convention, totally. um, all the other guys, like yeah. Alan Garfield's character. Um, yeah. You know, you get the sense that there's this whole well, thinking- secret community, right? And you get to be a part of it, which is so yeah. fun. Well, I was thinking about, um, uh, you know, like the, the motifs that we talk about that, that exist throughout, throughout his work, the, mm-hmm. the, like the, the hallmarks of what Coppola, what makes Coppola an auteur. And, and um, obviously family is the, is the big one, maybe the biggest one. And um, that is really, uh, 
you know, you think about Harry Call as like this solitary figure, yeah. but he and his family of, of fellow uh, uh, eavesdroppers or what, what do you call espionage professionals or <laughs> something? I forget, I forget the exact term. But there's the family story. And in a weird way, it's kind of like the B story in this yeah. movie where the, you know, the what they're actually trying to um, listen to and the ramifications thereof is kind of the A story. But there's so so much time spent on it um, with with him and, and, and Kazal, who is like just incredible in this movie. And Alan Garfield, as, as you mentioned, and, and, and the rest of them. And it's funny how like, you know, they are these surveillance professionals and, but they are also like when they're together, they just act like complete lunatics. Like they're, <laughs> they act like a pack of teenagers. It's like yeah, it's a frat these, house these people are supposed to be. Just, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I mean, I guess it's, you know, if you get a group of men together, I mean, it's the same thing happens in husbands, right? It's yeah. like, you know, they, 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 they play off each other and everything gets heightened. And everybody is, 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 you know, trying to be like, you know, prank each other out or, or, or whatever it is that, that the way that well, they they're, interact. They're trying and, to establish uh, the hierarchy, right? And like Alan Garfield wants to be the alpha, yeah. <laughs> alpha mm-hmm. eavesdropper. And, you know, I'm the best on the East Coast yeah. and you're the best on the West Coast. And he never, you know, and he, yeah. and he wants to so badly be Gene Hackman. And, it, and, it, and it's like, and he's yeah. pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. That's a great scene, that warehouse yeah. scene. But I think you're right. It's the family so aspect funny. in this is is John Cazale, because he's in that scene yeah. where he goes to totally. the to the eavesdrop eavesdroppers um, convention, and um, yeah. and because he sees Cazale working for Alan Garfield, he's so hurt. Yeah. And then he has that scene where he goes up to him after, and he's like, "Please don't do this to me." It's really much a lot like a a love scene, like a, a scene out of a yeah. love story where the where the spurred spurned lover returns and asks for a second chance, right? It's like, it's, yeah. it's one of the few really intimate exchanges that Harry has. Yeah. I love Cazal when he's behind the counter and, <laughs> uh, you know, Harry is sort of confronting him and he can't look at him and he's like yeah. just fidgeting with stuff and, you know, shuffling back and forth. And it's like, you know, he has some cornered in a way, despite the fact that this convention and, and, um, he's so vulnerable uh, but Harry, you know, he, he can't like, can't completely blame him. No. <laughs> he knows what he's like, you know? He's very self-aware, Harry Call, despite also being, like, just this, like, this strange, you know, uh, uh, like, person so dedicated to the specific thing that he's doing in his life. And, uh, yeah, I love that. I love that little interaction between the two of them. And then, of course, like, because I'll, you know, they all, they sort of make up in a way. Yeah. Um, because I'll goes with them to uh to their workspace i'm amazed actually that harry call actually lets alan garfield into his workspace yeah that's one thing Um, when i watched it the second time i was like it's so it's necessary for the movie oh did i lose you no i'm I'm here kind of amazed that uh harry call will let alan garfield uh the alan garfield character into his workspace because he's so protective of everything but yet at the same time you know he knows how good he is He's got and pride. He's prideful. He, exactly. He, it, this is his life. This is his entire life. And, and give him the chance to show it off. He'll take that over, um, you know, protecting what he does. Um, until, which of course, until know, Garfield violates a little bit. Yeah. When, when Garfield 
bugs him, mm-hmm. then yeah. then he's violated the space and he kicks everybody out. But you know what I noticed yeah. this time was that uh, at the end of that scene, John Caval says, "I'll see you on Monday, Harry," and I think that's the last time we see right. him. But I but I get the feeling that their relationship will be okay, you know, which is something yeah. that I never really noticed before. That just little touch at the end because Caval the thing yeah. about Caval is he's so sweet. He seems so sweet. And the way people talk about him as a person, whenever you hear people talk about him on in, in interviews or on these DVD supplements and stuff, it just sounds like he was like the greatest guy. Um, but he's in so he has so few movies because he died so young that it's like when when you watch The Godfather, I always feel bad for him, you know, because Fredo, right? <laughs> for yeah. all the reasons we completely tragic, yeah. And and then in Dog Day, he's kind of a sad sack, kind of you know. And in yeah. uh, same thing in Deer Hunter. So in this one, he gets to just be a little sweetheart. You know, he's just a set. Yeah. He, you know, he's just, he's sweet. He's, he's, and he, 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 you can see that he really cares about Harry. Maybe even wants to love the guy, you know, like he, because obviously yeah. he, the reason that he's working for, he goes to work at the booth for Alan Garfield is because he's injured by Harry rebuking him in the earlier scene. Right. Yeah. So it's one of my favorite little, like one of the, one of my favorite small, castings is is Kazal in this movie because he he yeah. really elevates the character so much far beyond what's probably on there on the page like when you think about Stan as a character there's not that much to him but when Kazal plays mm-hmm. him I mean that's the definition of a great character actor you know somebody whose face yeah. tells the story and tells you gives you their character his voice does it his mannerisms he just seems to be that guy yeah. it's per, it's perfect casting yeah. you know it's perfect casting Absolutely. across the I was, board I was, yeah I was thinking the same thing about Kazal specifically that, you know, this really shows the, 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 the true skill of, of the character actor is, is getting the nuance and, yeah. and it's there. Like it's, um, yeah, it's such a, such a, just, it's such a damn tragedy that we only have five movies with this guy. It's, you know, you watch these, these are all usually movies you watch, you know, when you're just getting into yeah. movies and you're like, who is this guy? Like, why isn't, you know, why isn't he in more movies? And it's like this is all we got. He's got five moves. You better yeah. enjoy it. And but the, <laughs> they're he's he's batting a thousand, right? Like he he doesn't give a uh-huh. false yeah, note totally in in yeah. on screen in any of those movies, you know. So he's yeah. whenever you see him, it's like you know you're watching a classic. Um, yeah, and he's he's great in this. I like I liked what you said. Uh, what you said just a little while ago about uh, you know the the level of casting in, in this movie, and I think that's part of the power that Cola had um, was that he could put people in this movie that he wanted to. And uh, Terry Garr is the perfect example of like, like, yeah, just like this great tiny little part and somebody that Coppola had known through Fred Roos and um, hadn't, you know, done a ton of stuff before this, but like this, this really key interaction. And it is like, I mean, you know, Gene Hagman's he's always great. He's, you know, but I love that interaction between the two of them because it's so natural. Like it's just yeah. him going to see her and it's just this, this little, you know, extra coloring of character for, for Harry call. And you know, it's like, Oh, it's, you know, he has this, this, this extra little bit of humanism to him. And, but it's just like this, the interaction between the two of them, it's, it's, sweet and then it's just like it's, then so it's just kind of sad it's so lonely but you know, I, I think I you'd love, be lonelier it's it's lonelier than if he didn't have that character in his life 
because so, totally her absolutely yeah means that he there's a part of him there's still a part of him that's alive in there that he's he's given up in order to protect his privacy he's made he's made his life sort of like nothing happens in his life he has no one in his life he has nothing mm-hmm. it's like the only you know they say the only way to keep a secret between two people is if one of them is dead it's almost like in order to, right. the only way to hold on to your privacy is to have absolutely nothing that anyone could possibly observe so he it's almost like yeah. he doesn't exist and then he has but we know that he used to have a different life he had a life in new york city mm-hmm. before he was in san francisco yeah. and he had and something went wrong so we have this sense that there might be the terry gar character maybe um you know <clears throat> having access to whatever little tiny spark of that old harry call that remains and yeah, you know what's funny about Terry Gar is she's only in the movie for a couple minutes, but she's one of the things that I remember yeah. about the movie when I think of it. And for sure, like she's one of those actors that all she has to do is smile, and yeah, you know, you love her, you're rooting for her. She seems so fragile and also so like powerful. She gives so much light and and color to that scene and to the movie just by her brief appearance. Like I'm a huge, I love Terry yeah. Gar. <laughs> Just, I love her. I, I, I like how, um, well, you know, he sort of goes on the bed and, um, <laughs> you know, he hasn't, hasn't taken his shoes off. Hasn't taken his off. He hasn't taken anything off, but he's, he's on the bed and he's like kind of sweet and nice with her. And, um, she's asking him more about his personal life and she probably knows more about him than, than, almost anybody. Yeah. And she's asking him questions and he has his arm around her and then he like removes his arm and her head just kind of goes thunk backwards <laughs> like on the, on the, on the wall behind her. And I laughed out loud when I watched it that recently because, you know, it's, just, it's a very subtle moment of, you know, showing this guy is not, you know, the most romantic uh, dude <laughs> in the world, but also like, I wondered if that was actually in the script or if that was by accident. <laughs> that's probably an accident but it's perfect <laughs> you know it's perfect because it, it it's like he really does retreat yeah. pull into himself at that moment so it's a good yeah. it's a good physical action that mirrors his emotional state yeah. you know but she's and 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 then she's gone you know and like i miss her in the rest of the movie yeah because um he becomes more and more withdrawn if you think he's withdrawn at the beginning of the movie then holy crap like yeah just it, yeah it intensifies to the point where you know, it's got one of the, for me, it's got one of the great endings. I mean, what he does to his apartment at the end is, is like, it's so great. Yeah. Um, but the story is interesting too, because usually when I think about the conversation, the story is not what lingers. You know, the story is very, very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in fact, it's almost yeah. minimal to the point of non-existence. Um, because, because yeah. it's really, in, it's such an interior movie. It's He just keeps hearing that tape over mm-hmm. and over again and replaying it yeah. replaying it replaying it and so there's so much repetition um so i wondered when you watched it again like i hadn't seen it for a couple of years and so i couldn't quite remember what what the conspiracy was about you know like i i, I remember mm-hmm. i remember sort of like the feeling of it um but what did you think when you watched it again in in, in as far as the story went like were you were you wrapped well, I, up in the I mystery mean, I, or Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I have the same sort of experience with this film. Um, thinking about it, like thinking about the, the, the individual scenes and the feeling of it and, and um, getting into the, 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 the lead character 
but not necessarily remembering who is doing what to whom and what happened to all these people in the end and, and you know, who died and who gets with it and whatnot. It's not really necessarily something I think about when I think about this movie. And I think that's why this movie is so brilliant because it doesn't, it doesn't really matter in, in the grand scheme of things, but when you're watching it, it's like, it, you know, it just keeps you riveted because you're like, what is going on? Like, I know what's going on. I've seen this movie before, but like, what is, you know, what is, exactly going on why why is this happening and and what is going to happen from from time to time and how is it most importantly how is it going to affect the, the main character yeah that's um that's ultimately I, what I it is right yes because i yeah well it's a character because that's what i was going to say is that the mystery for me uh it works because it it pulls the movie along but but really yeah. it's not about the mystery it's not about the resolution of what was that tape about it's about it's yeah. about a guy who in the beginning is so completely controlled and tightly knit that, you know, he's unfeeling yeah. and uncaring, but he can't be, he's, he's, he's like locked away in one of his Faraday cages. He's like out of reach. And then by yeah. the end of the movie, he's, yeah. he's been reached and, and breached and mm-hmm. he, he unravels. And it's more about yeah. the mystery of the movie is what's going to happen to this guy when he, when he, when he loses all of his his uh, defenses and all of his walls and everything like that, what what happens when when this man comes undone and he comes undone in a yeah, I mean, in a glorious fashion? Like he definitely unravels, but is he unraveled or does he become free? Yeah, like he the very end of the movie is him, you know, doing the one thing that he loves, playing the saxophone to jazz records. The one thing that he loves besides that part surveillance. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the addition of the jazz um, so, thing. If somebody tells you that, that they have a character in their movie and their character is going to secretly play jazz along to records, wouldn't you say, <laughs> don't do it? <laughs> like, <laughs> it sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's already been perfected. You don't, yeah, yeah, start over. We, we don't need to see that again. <laughs> because it shouldn't work, but it works perfectly. It works so well, and and I believe that he's playing the saxophone. It's just it, it it's like it's yeah, and and it's also what's nice about it is because the score is that piano score. There's not a lot of there's not yeah. a lot of oh. um. It's such a simple. It's a beautiful, perfect score. But it, it but it's so the well saxophone so on well top done. of it gives it this other sad layer. That's really beautiful, right? But yeah. so David Shire yeah. did the music, and David Shire. Yeah is was Francis Ford Coppola's brother-in-law, right? So that's where yeah. Talia Shire. Uh, part, was, was yeah, part of the to. Coppola family tree. So, you know, it's, and you could talk about nepotism and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the truth is everybody in the Coppola family brings the heat. And David Shire's yeah. score is one of the, I think, when I think about the movie, it's one of the things that I, I think about the most. Yeah. I I mean, I, I don't, I'm not great at, um, picking out scores. Um, it's not necessarily something that I pay attention to. I work with a guy who is really into soundtracks and scores and he knows like we will bring up a movie and he'll be like, Oh yeah, great. Jerry Goldsmith score. <laughs> like, that. like I don't, I can't, I, I, you know, I know, uh, I know Morricone when I hear it and, yeah. and that's about it. Well, he's the but it does, that doesn't, doesn't mean that it's not something that I can pick out and, and be interested in when uh, I'm actually watching it. What I like about the, the what Shire did with the score, and I get the feeling he had a little bit of guidance from uh, Coppola with this, is that 
because this is a, a movie about a solitary man, yeah. it's a score with a solitary instrument. It's a, it's a solo piano for the most part. Um, and it works like he could have, you know, Coppola could have took the easy way and, and made it, made it a jazz some, some sort because he like this man likes jazz. So let's make sure. it a jazz score. But he, of course he's not going to do that. Um, but again, you know, uh, uh, this brings us back to another classic Coppola motif. It's the maverick, the solitary man, yeah. the, the, the one guy against, against it all that will come back again and again in, in, in Coppola movies. Um, you know, this is like, uh, it, it appears in Patton and uh, it's a little bit in You're a Big Boy Now and a little bit in Rain People, but this really that's the uh that's the mold for that that uh um in 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 Coppola's filmography for sure well it's also worth noting that david shire's score um he did he did um zodiac and i think that the reason that yeah. the zodiac score exists is because of the conversation score i think i think fincher said that that that, mm-hmm. that he got david shire because you think of 70s in san francisco you think of the conversation in that piano score. It's like it's, mm-hmm. it's a it, it's really hard once you stop as soon as you turn the movie off not to hear it in your head for the next twenty four hours. <laughs> I'm still hearing it right now. Yeah, totally. You know. <laughs> yeah, but it is. It's a. It it it's also it's a sad and small. It's it's it fits the movie so well um, because it's not like The Godfather. Yeah. It's not big and orchestral, and it's not a. It's not a. It's not iconic in this in in a way, you know. It's it's a it's it's a it's a very melancholy. It's a small it's a small melody, and and you know the, obviously mm-hmm. when you think about the Godfather, the first thing you think of is the music, and you think about how big it is. And um, but I, one of the things I love about the, the conversation is maybe it's because it was made in between those two films. It's really hard to watch the conversation without thinking about the Godfather and and thinking about part two. And seem, somehow it seems like they are they. The, their their epic scale seems to somehow bleed over onto this little movie because the conversation still always feels to me like a big movie mm-hmm. and it's really it's really small and intimate you know do you get that feeling that that's something about the grandeur of the godfathers d- d- does it bleed into how you think about the conversation at all uh well i mean it, like it, i sort of fit the conversation into the framework of you know stuff like the long goodbye yeah and Friends of Eddie Coyle and that kind of um, new Hollywood style of filmmaking where it's, you know, very contemporary, um, moody, there's a moral ambiguity to it. And and, and then it's like these sort of specific hallmarks of, of what um, differentiated new Hollywood style from uh, the filmmaking of 10, 15 or 20, 20 years before. You do see definitely a lot of... Um, more uh, uh, playing playing with the moral ambiguity of of, of, of your uh, protagonist in in starting in the middle sixties and then of course you go back into uh, crime pictures and film noir it's all over the place but done in a different way than than this um, I never I never really think think of it as as like an epic story but it does you know it does have ambitious scale to it for sure like there this is you know it is a, it is a story um it's more than just like you know these personal things to these people. and it's a as Coble always 
talks about this. It is a story about um, paranoia and surveillance and, and, and how he was kind of obsessed with that and, and how it manifest would manifest itself in, into like, you know, this sort of weird gray area of, um, uh, you know, a person, a person's job bleeding into literally bleeding into uh, something that causes, you know, uh, people to end other people's lives. Yeah. You know, it's funny though, the, the, the ambiguity, the moral ambiguity, because these movies like think about this with um, taxi driver recently. And then mm-hmm. I think with this movie as well is it's like in the beginning, the characters seem to be sort of amoral, right. Rather than immoral. They just like, yeah, they're apart from it. Right. They're not touched by it. Like, I mean, his whole thing at the beginning is he doesn't care. He doesn't care. Um, talking about yeah. Hackman in, uh, in conversation. And then at the end, they, they, they become, they do care. They get involved and it's their undoing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like at the end, and it's interesting what you say that you, I think you have a more hopeful, um, reading of the ending of the conversation than I did. Cause I, I took it as like he was destroyed, mm-hmm. but like you said, it might be that he's free. And it's the same thing with Travis Bickle at the end, right? Like he, he implodes, but then he, sur- he survives. Um, yeah. And whether taxi driver is a happy ending or not is, you know, yeah. for debate. Um, but, but in this, but in these movies, the, the moral ambiguity is really in the beginning of the picture. But, but as the movie goes along, mm-hmm. um, taxi driver is more ambiguous than this, but it's sort of, the whole thing is about him having to take on accountability and realize that, he made this recording and this recording is going to be used for a purpose and that purpose may be murderous. And, and he starts to say, I'm not just a link in a chain. I'm actually one of the people responsible for the causality of this thing. And I bear responsibility. And then he tries to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, does he does and he doesn't right? Like he, 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 yeah, he tries, but he can only go so far and he tries his hardest in his dream, right? It's the dream sequence where he like is trying to actually stop this thing or understand it better at the very least. Like, and just, um, you know, trying, trying to relate to the woman to, to, to just understand what's happening a little bit. And he, and he says, I'm not afraid of death. (laughs) (laughs) I just, this like out of, Seemingly out of nowhere, just completely out of context. I'm not. I'm not afraid of death. Yeah. Or I'm, I can't remember exactly that where they says I'm not afraid of death, or I'm not afraid to die, or not afraid of dying, or, or whatever it is. Where it's like he's trying to convince himself that he's like the only one who can prevent this from happening. But it's you know as we see as as it goes as it goes along to, towards the end, he has no idea. He has absolutely no idea what's happening. Like and he doesn't as much prevent as he would it. Think he would like to, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and and nobody could because it's, um, it, you know, he has, I don't know if it's hubris, but it's like he does have this sense that, like, this will be the time that I actually can atone for what happened um, that caused him to move across the country and completely sort of reexamine what he was doing with the horrible thing that happened. Uh, which is, you know, just sort of subtly uh, mentioned early, early on. Um, yeah, you find the, that in the, the warehouse scene, really. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, and then but he can't, can't, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, but he doesn't. It's not like he becomes a hero in the sense that he tries to prevent it from happening. 
because he doesn't know enough. And it's it's interesting that he yeah. he keeps listening to the same dialogue in the recording that he made, but yeah, making the wrong inference about what it means. And it's really interesting. Yeah. It's like you can get and and it's like as long as he doesn't care about the content, then the recording is a hundred percent perfect. But mm-hmm. if the purpose of the recording is to tell you what's going to happen doesn't matter how well it was recorded it's still a mystery it's he still can't solve it you know and and it's it's but it's so fascinating to watch hackman um go from the character at the beginning of the story who 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 won't show you his feelings whatever to at the end where i think i like your reading of it that that he's free at the end i mean maybe that is really the way to think about it because he's just expressing himself with his saxophone at the end sitting in his ruined apartment and yeah maybe he is freed of of all these restraints that he's put over himself maybe maybe he really did have to tear down his world in order to build a new one or maybe he yeah i mean it it, it could it could go any way like we don't know we don't see it's up for us to 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 figure out like it could be like this is it for him he's done with what he's devoted his life to or he has to keep going despite the fact that he's kind of, um, you know, metaphorically destroyed his entire world around him. It could, it can go either way. It's, it, you know, well, it also depends on whether what you it, think what makes it great. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's ambiguity. That's narrative ambiguity. You know? And I love that it, yeah. it lets you like, we could walk out of there with two different interpretations of what the ending meant. They can both be true and that's yeah. great. Um, but then it depends on how you feel the conversation is affected by his character is perform Gene Hackman's performance in enemy of the state because mm-hmm. you know, there are like fan theories or whatever that it's the same character, you know, mm-hmm. that, that it's not just a, uh, an homage to the conversation, but that he's playing the same guy, um, which is an interesting yeah. way to watch enemy of the state. You know, obviously enemy of the state benefits right. from the fact that he was Harry call in the conversation. Um, and it's like, it's like doing spy game with Robert Redford because, you know, Robert right. Redford played the spy in um, Three Days of the Condor. So you get that. Three Days of the Condor, yeah. Yeah, you get that great continuity. But but what do you think of that? I mean, I don't know if you've seen um, Enemy of the State recently or not, but I, I watched it recently. Well, I did. I'm definitely not recently, but <laughs> I saw Enemy of the State not very long after I had seen uh, the conversation for the first time. Oh. I saw Enemy of the State in theaters in 98 when it was released, I think 98, 97 or 98. Um, and it wasn't obvious to me, um, that it was, uh, meant to be the same or similar, uh, character that it was, you know, that it was, uh, referencing that. Um, I mean, I know that, that it's, it's an interesting, uh, gigantic Easter egg if it, if it is one. Yeah. Um, it's just like, it's been so long since I've seen enemy of the state. I like, can't really I watched it. talk I watched about, it recently. about it that much. But the idea is that in it, yeah. that he go, if you, if you would see the similarity in the characters and say, okay, maybe it's possible that the same guy, then the idea would be, then he went back mm-hmm. to doing exactly what he was doing and he, be, and he became a, yeah. you know, and he had some sort of relationship with Lisa Bonet. I think she's like supposed to be his like, and under, under, and a, under a new name and a new identity, right? Yeah, but that would fit the character, though. I think because he he could have, yeah, of course, he could have moved and you know, being a guy who's a who's a privacy expert or whatever, he's created false documents. He's got himself a new identity. I would believe all that. I mean, I yeah, there's there's nothing in yeah, very easy. 
there's nothing in enemy of the state that I think contradicts the theory that he could be the same guy. But, um, but yeah. even if he did go back to doing that again, he, I think the idea is that he gets, o- he, he gets over it, whatever happens. At the, like he's the end of the conversation is not necessarily the end of that character, you know, but mm-hmm. he's been shaken away out of his complacency. And I think that's something For that's sure. interesting, right? Like he's apathetic at the beginning and he's not yep. really alive. And at the end of the movie, maybe he's alive, you know, even though he's been destroyed. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice yeah. irony. Yeah. And the movie, yeah, what did absolutely. you think about the look of it? Like, you know what I was saying about the fact that it kind of fits in with the aesthetic of The Godfather, but it definitely looks different. So, I mean, what, what did you think about just the, the look of it, the visual palette? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it doesn't have as much of that different shades of darkness that you get in The Godfather, which is, you know, obviously used to create mood um, for a great deal of that picture. Um, I, I mean, I think it looks, gorgeous like it's, it's, no, it's like beautiful. a fantastic fantastic looking picture um you remember I, the shot when he's in the phone I, booth and there's like he's on, yeah and there's the red reflections from from the storefront or whatever behind yeah. him and he's got it's like got yeah. the three red lines going across his face it's like it's just it's so it's 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 so beautiful and it's like it's exciting to mm-hmm. see a little more color i think than we saw in the godfather Right, for sure. Well, I think, like, you know, you see, like, I was re-listening to the Godfather episode, and we were talking about how it's a city picture, and it's about living, living like, it's a, an urban yeah. experience kind of thing. I mean, this is really that, like, front to back. I, I love how he, like, you know, has to, like, cro- cross the, you know, like, deserted back streets to hop on a city bus yeah. home. And, um, you know, I think because of the amount of location shooting with this, with this film and Coppola is obviously not shy about location shooting, um, loves it. And I think, I think with that, like, obviously there are external factors that you have to keep an eye out for when you're doing that, but it really, um, has that sort of gritty, urban feel to it without being, you know, like, like it's not a conventional crime picture or anything no. like that. And it doesn't, no, the not, gritty doesn't come from that. It's just, it's just the day to day stuff that that's in this, you know, going from, um, you know, different apartments and, uh, it's brief foray into the world of the extremely wealthy <laughs> that he, you know, and just him like running around the entire time with his raincoat and his plastic raincoat. Man, I love <laughs> his raincoat. It's, it's one of those things that it's, it, you're talking about motifs, right? Like his raincoat is yeah. is see through, you know. But he's a guy who's yeah. who wants to be completely invisible. Um, it's, yeah, it's so great. I love. I wish I had that raincoat. I, I love it. But he wears it no matter what. It doesn't matter if it's sunny, if yeah. it's raining. He wears it to bed with Terry yeah. R. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, um, exactly. But it's yeah. his, it's his armor, right? And the only the only time he's he's not wearing it is when he takes off his pants. Yeah, in his apartment, <laughs> which I love. That's so that's so great, right? Because he's like, yeah. he knows he's alone. Um, he uh, at least he's 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 can he believes at that time that he's safe. He doesn't. He, you don't see him with the metal detector or anything like that that he uses yeah. to to try and find the microphones at the end. Um, but yeah. I, lo- I love, I, I mean, everything about his look is perfect. It's one of those things that it's like his totally. receding hairline, the mustache, yeah. 
the skinny tie. He just he looks he looks great, and he looks like when you see the behind the scenes footage, um, you see Gene Hackman. He's wearing a denim jacket. He's looks younger than Harry Call. He looks handsome, and yeah. And then Harry Call seems like ten years older than Gene Hackman was at the time. It's like it's amazing. Yeah, totally. Subtle yeah. transformation. Um, but you know what else is amazing when you look at it again, and I always forget is Harrison Ford. Yeah. Right. Harrison yeah. Ford a few years before, I guess three years before he would be Han Solo. Um, mm-hmm. And he's so good. <laughs> he's got such a small part, um, you know, as the age. He plays it perfectly for like the style of guy that he is. Like he, right? he, he does that exactly perfectly. And Coppola said that, that the character is really nothing on the page, but that Harrison Ford invented little things like his, his wardrobe he picked out, you know, that's, whatever but um but there's like christmas cookies on the on the table and he's like you know when he's eating the christmas cookies when he's trying to play all nonchalant like he doesn't really care if he gets the tapes that he's that that gene hackman's supposed to give him until the end and then you see like yeah um but that even that's great stuff i love those little things the christmas cookies the little little things that give you a sense of when the story is actually taking place um but it's amazing to see young harrison ford and I think even in the short, like there's maybe one close above him or something in the movie, but when he's on screen, it's like, man, what a movie star. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. I'm a huge, I love Harrison Ford. Not, I, I, I'm not even like, it's so much an Indiana Jones thing or a Han Solo thing. But to me, I think that there was a period of time in the eighties and the nineties when Harrison Ford was like the great American leading man, you know, like uh mosquito. Coast. Yeah, for sure witness yeah um you know that period where he's in a bunch of really serious presumed innocent is another one frantic Mm -hmm. you know he's really like a serious leading man um and hey don't forget regarding henry man i love regarding henry (laughs) (laughs) i saw that in the theater with my grandma you know i have i have a special soft spot in my heart hey i I saw it in the theater with my mom so (laughs) there you go yeah no regarding henry isn't good yeah but (laughs) But I, but I, it's I have such a nostalgia for anything that came out in like 1991, which I think is when it came out. Sure. Um, or that, yeah. That that it, it could have been 93, but whatever it was that that era. or no 93 is probably Fugitive. I mean Fugitive is another one. Like he did so many great. Yeah. He's done so many great movies, not including even the Indiana Jones. And I saw a picture mm-hmm. today of Indiana Jones, him at in Indiana Jones five. I saw like man, he's still. I can't believe that exists. Right. <laughs> Spielberg didn't do it though. It's a wild. Yeah. No, of course. <laughs> it's James Mangold, but I don't know. James Mangold maybe can do it. We'll see. I can't believe there's an Indiana Jones fight. Uh, yeah, more power to them. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's it's cool, you know, that he's that he's like embracing his that he's doing these sequels and stuff. I mean, Blade Blade Runner 2049, uh, the best part about it for me was seeing him. Did you ever see that the Blade Runner? Sorry, sequel? I had it just for a brief second, I think. Did you ever see the Blade Runner sequel? Yeah, oh yeah, I loved it. Yeah, great. Yeah. He was great though in it, especially right. So I, I like that he's returning to his yeah. iconic roles. So I mean, I'm I'm going to see Indiana yeah. Jones five. Um, but what? So when, looking back at the conversation, was there anything that 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 you were really surprised about this time, having now doing it in chronological uh, order? Um, like, are you seeing anything? Well, I don't. I mean, I, I, I don't know if there was 
anything that stuck out to me in terms of looking at uh, this film chronologically. I mean, again, the stuff that I've sort of brought up is that we see sort of recurrent motifs in, in Coppola's work. They're brought into a little bit uh, stronger relief because we're specifically trying to find those things and, and look at them. But um, if you know anything about Coppola and his movies, when you are watching these movies for the first time, you see the, you see that as well. Um, the one thing that I really noticed, I think, this time around is just how terrifying like the last 30 minutes are. Yeah. And it reminded me of, of stuff like uh, the Cronenberg pictures from around this time, like yeah. Shivers and Rabbit and the De Palma stuff as well, like Harry and Sisters. It had really had that similar feeling. And that's something we haven't really seen from, from Coppola yet is his ability to do uh, uh, horror and, and terror and just like extreme suspense. Especially like when Harry Call comes around the corner and sees and sees that blood right in his face, it's absolutely like it made me shudder. It was yeah. it was just um, just absolutely frightening. It's interesting um, actually to think of it but, as a uh, psychological horror movie. Yeah, I think like there is. I I wish I I wish I had written this down. I didn't actually write it down exactly, but. Um, there is a moment I feel like you can really pinpoint it when the when the you know what actually you know what I think it is I think it's like the very end of that dream sequence when he tells the stories about being a child and um just you know the I'm not afraid of death mm. just saying that and and then it just goes into this like absolute nail biter of a movie and also like you know Hitchcock like yeah. <laughs> it's it's Hitchcock stuff like it's just him twisting that suspense knife well the blood and, in the um, is very and the Hitchcock. blood which is absolutely terrifying because it's it's so clever because when you rewatch it like if I rewatch it right away and you just watch Coppola like tease you with all the stuff that he's doing in the bathroom like you think he's looking for for for, for just some sort of physical evidence or or bugs or whatever and then the blood well, you comes. Think he's going to find blood. You think he's going to find blood when he puts yeah. his hand uh, uh, in yeah. the bathtub under the faucet, yeah. like under the drain, and his he pulls yeah. his hand up. It's a close up, and there's no blood, yeah. and yeah. you're expecting it. So it's like okay, yeah. they've covered it up. Yeah, but he won't let go of the toilet. Yeah, he keeps going back to the toilet. Yeah, and then it's like so, yeah. it's so nasty when the blood comes out. It's so. It's so, but you know what? It is. It is really unnerving. Like it is. It is Coppola unnerving you. And Absolutely. It, it is good to think of yeah. those uh, those seventies era sort of thrillers. Um, there's a little Polanski to it too. I think. Like when you think about a movie like totally. Frantic, where it's just it's that it just makes you feel ill at ease. Yep. You know, um, I think yep, one of the sure. things that surprised me going back to it this time was just how modern it felt. I was really expecting it to feel like an old movie mm-hmm. and that the technology would feel yeah. old and it would seem like outdated and kind of silly, but it didn't. I, I, I really enjoyed the technology in it and I fe- felt like the movie seemed like it could it could be made today. And I know that the tape recorders would be digital and Absolutely. everything like that, but aside from the reel-to-reel stuff, um, it just mm-hmm. it, everything to do with the microphones feels like it's this, it would be the similar thing today. I guess at the time, shotgun microphones were new, but... I just think that 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 the themes 
of the movie paranoia all that stuff it's only only it's only more relevant now you know what, what we give up for privacy how much of our privacy we give up for technology um you yeah. know and how isolating it is like harry call is a cautionary tale and you yeah. know he's so obsessed with his own privacy that he he alienates himself to the point of being essentially like solid having a solitary existence right barely has anyone in his life he yeah. doesn't have friends um yeah. You know, he has an employee who could be his friend, but isn't, right? Um, the John Cazale character. Yeah, but, it's about as friendly as he gets. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the great romance he has, the Terry Gar character. I mean, it's like the closest thing he gets to sharing a feeling about it is when he's talking to the girl from the um, the woman from the um, trade show. I forget who, who what the character yeah. is. Uh, you know, it comes back to the warehouse yeah. with them, and, he's, and he asks for the question yeah. if, if there was a guy. And he basically... D- describes his relationship to Terry Gar to her and says, would you go back to him? You know, and that's the one time he's a little bit yeah. really vulnerable, but he, he should have done that with Terry Gar. And that's what makes it even more. Lonely, Absolutely. Right? I'm so, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Cause I had kind of forgotten about it, but it, it's like that little sequence again, just like, uh, so clever because it shows that there is this, you know, inside this guy is somebody who wants, uh, you know, a genuine, intimate love that he can share with somebody, but he just can't, like, he cannot, there's just something that's stopping him, and it's just because of the things that he's obsessed with, and I love how he says at the end, you you could never know for sure, yeah. and it's, which, which would be a deal breaker for anybody, but it's, yeah. like, because nobody can get inside of his head, and, um, yeah, that's a great sequence. It really shows that, you know, he does have like this, he is kind of this romantic guy in a way, or he has this romanticism in him. What guy sits around in his underwear playing the saxophones, a romantic guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. But he can't, he can't manifest it. He can't, you know, express it properly and, and, and give somebody what they need. Um, yeah. Uh, Great sequence. I mean, this is a uh, this is a movie that I've always loved, and I love it every time that I watch it. And it's uh, I think this is you know one of my you know five star canon films. Yeah, and it's really it's it's just becomes more and more rich every time that that you watch it. And it really just shows you know like the Coppola, you know, given the opportunity to do exactly what he wanted to do, he comes out with something that's legitimately pretty impressive. Yeah, I think it's a it, it's one of those movies that, like you said, gets richer every time. This was my most, probably the most I enjoyed ever watching it was re-watching it this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and that, I mean, I loved it every single time I've seen it, so it just goes to show you that it only gets better because you see different things. You see, you're, you know, you hear different things. You're looking at different parts totally. of the frame. Um it's it's kind of a miracle of a little movie because it has so few parts, but all the parts seem to add up to something greater than the sum total. And it's like it's it's it shows that The Godfather wasn't a fluke. It shows that he could do something that was an original story, not just because with The Godfather you could say, well, maybe it's because he had great source material. You know, he never he never had great source material before, but he he wrote. You know, yeah, he 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 was the 
uh, Rain People's an original picture. So it goes to show you that when he had the support, which he only got because of Godfather, um, he could do a small picture, a personal picture, a more European style picture, a more personal picture, yeah. um, and do it with the same, you know, assuredness he did the Godfather, and and then obviously, you know, if you if you were in 1974, um, you were a fan of American movies. And you just seen The Godfather, and now the conversation. I mean, can you imagine the fever pitch at which you're anticipating The Godfather two? Yeah. Right. So <laughs> right, might be a good might be a good place yeah. to wrap it up and say, you know, <laughs> next week we get to get to the finally we're we're gonna get to Godfather Part Two, and and it's exciting because it's you know there now it's, then it's three in a row. But really, when you think about Coppola, yeah, um, for me. You know, when you say, what is the artist at the height of his powers, uh, both in terms of his his influence, um, you know, and also his his craft. Um, we're about to get into what is one of the greatest apexes, I think, of any American filmmaker um, with The mm-hmm. Godfather Part Two. So I'm mean, really excited to get into that. Well, I'm excited to get into it as well, because I have. Uh, n- not seen The Godfather Part Two as as often as I've seen his other films that I love, and I've always had issues with it, wow, and okay. I continue to have issues with wow. The Godfather Part Two. Interesting, but uh, we'll get to that in our next episode. Um, thanks to everyone for listening, Thank and you. if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. We have uh, an email address: it's the filmography, the podcast, all one word at gmail.com the filmography the podcast at gmail.com and uh reese thanks again thank you and we'll uh we'll talk to you again in the future you bet take care everyone